Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and I'm here in the open bunny quotes studio, closed bunny quotes with uh, Nate Crowley. How are you? I'm very well, Tim. Hello. Um, we're not in a studio. We're in my uh, the end room of my house. There's a lovely skylight, though. There is a beautiful um, uh, th- a sun trap above us, uh, and it's it's briefly a, a blue sky day before uh, the prophesied uh, winter apocalypse descends upon Great well, the Britain. The vortex comes. So yes. so I've so I've heard. Um, and today uh, I'm really excited because we're going to. Uh, talk about well all sorts of things uh some about fic well you know what the show's about but we're going to talk a bit about fiction and ideas and world building and all sorts of stuff now i first uh heard you uh back in uh, i guess it was it would have been nine worlds the uh convention mm. i went there and you were doing uh a you were doing a well "Quote unquote." Sh- what do they call it in conventions? Is it a show? A, a show? Yeah, a, a panel. A maybe. panel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've been to one. I've been literally to one con. It was that one, and I went around <laughs> feeling really, really uh, shy and and wild and like the little country mouse, kind of like coming to. I felt like I felt like a babe to pig in the city all over. And <laughs> but I, I, went, I went to your panel, and I um, and it was. I guess it was you, you. Would it be fair to say you? It's kind of like a kind of fictive, f- fictive pioneer. Is that is that is that? Am I going too far? But certainly you you were pioneer is r- good because it makes me think of sort of rugged backwoods people. Yeah, I'll go. For yeah, pioneer. yeah. I mean, certainly. Yeah, there was. I I certainly feel like you were you were delivering something um, that was written in a format that. Has not been possible in the past. Shall we say that? Maybe, mm. maybe a few people. But so, are you doing your uh, uh, Daniel Barker's birthday stuff? Yes. Yeah. Wow. So that would have been uh, probably 2015. Yeah. I'm that thinking. sounds yeah. about. That sounds about right. And I'd been sort of sprinting all about this convention, feeling very meek. And then I went into this panel where, you know, you did you delivered a lot, but a lot of the fiction and creative writing you were delivering to the audience was stuff that you'd had sort of originally appeared on Twitter. And I was wondering, just to give people who've not heard any of your stuff before a little insight into this, and I know you've been asked about this a a lot, but just because I think it's such a mind-bending idea and in the nicest way is the kind of thing that a lot of people have had the idea for and then never seen through... um, I just wondered whether you could just talk about it a little bit because I think it's a really great introduction into uh, some of the stuff you do. Yeah, well, it's um, I'm very happy to. It's that was sort of what started my formal publishing career, and I like to put it forward as an example of my work because I like taking things too far or um, extrapolating something to its fullest extent. Yeah, that's exa- that was it. That'd be exactly how I would. It, it's like. It was like, how far can this thing be pushed? And then whatever you answered, it's like, no, 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 further. (laughs) (laughs) So this was um, an apologies to anyone who 
has been subjected to this story before. Uh, <laughs> sort, of, sort of apologies, but at the same time, there must be a slightly sadistic grin in your eye where part of the joke is to repeatedly subject people to it. This is it. Yeah, it's year after year. Um, I'm asked about uh, Daniel Barker's birthday, but the, the genesis of it was uh, on Daniel Barker's birthday <laughs> in January of 2015. Daniel Barker being... Uh, a friend of mine who I knew primarily through Twitter. Um, he was a pal. We'd met up a couple of times. I wouldn't say we were desperately close. He's a very funny man on Twitter. And he had tweeted, with his tongue firmly in his cheek, that uh, no one was... Not enough people were wishing him a happy birthday. And why I'm didn't sorry, they do I'm more? sorry to spoil the joke, but I'm just going to say that I'm actually now just pure... And it must be so frustrating for people, not only who have heard it before but anyone who hasn't heard it that I keep interrupting you but I'm I'm actually I'm actually like almost in uncontrollable laughter just remembering <laughs> now I, I don't want to overcook it but sorry but it's just so it we it started off with him complaining that not enough people were wishing him a happy birthday so I uh, I wished him a happy birthday and then I tweeted some weird little sort of rhyming couplets about his birthday happy birthday mate you know um Variants on the happy birthday song, stuff like that. And then the day finished and that was fine. And then the next morning I got up and I started again, um, wishing him a happy birthday. And I did it the next day. And I did it the next day. I think on the seventh day of his birthday, I switched from doing the songs and the rhymes and just described a vignette of a load of clowns being woken by a stick smacking against the side of a shipping container and them trudging out underneath a giant leaden banner saying happy birthday Daniel Barker and then I kept doing this day after day and the vignettes grew more and more uh, sequential um, they stopped being sort of isolated visions and started being a narrative uh, about a world entirely consumed by the celebration of Daniel Barker's birthday and in which Daniel Barker himself featured his name was actually in every tweet and he was pictured as this sort of absolutely vicious but incredibly fragile tyrant um, who... An, an eerily prescient <laughs> subject. Yeah. <laughs> um, he... Yeah, oh, gosh, yes. Um, but he would... yeah. Th these things that I threw in... When I thought it was a joke that might last a week or two, I threw in things like him drinking leopard blood as his yeah, drink he, of choice. He, there was a kind of repeated refrain of various big cats' uh, blood that he drinks throughout the... The saga. <laughs> and the saga it became, because it lasted 75 days. Um, I did check with Daniel after a couple of weeks to make sure it wasn't cyberbullying. Um, but he was actually having a great time. Uh, it brought us... I wouldn't say it was entirely... Uh, comfortable for him at all times. A lot of people wished him a happy birthday who he didn't know. A lot of people started following this. Um, but he did get quite into it. And um, we actually became very good friends as a result of the, the whole thing. Uh, it, it finished um, in uh, the basement of the Star of Kings, which is a pub in, um, in North London. And... There's about 100, 100 odd people there. Um, my friend Kat and my partner Ashley organised a party um, and loads of people who didn't know each other and who didn't know us showed up in this basement 
in character <laughs> as things from Daniel Barker's birthday. Because, of course, these, you know, arbitrary details like leopard blood had expanded into these tropes that had rumbled on for months now. And so people came as, like, injured leopards with cannulas and clowns, of course, of various types, um, you know, and it'd become galactic in scope by the end. So we had this strange basement LARP of Daniel Barker's birthday where Daniel showed up in character as himself <laughs> uh, and he had this sort of like despot's uniform on he was very dashing actually um, yeah it all got, it all became a strange metafiction. And, 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 and it's it just strikes me as because you read out um, some of the saga at the event uh, with the dystopia, this hellish dystopia where everybody has to uh, celebrate uh, Daniel Barker's birthday on 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 pain uh, of death, and no uh, no celebration is ever big enough for him or grand enough, and uh, and and it somehow gets uh, gets worse and encompasses more of the world. There's a there's a, a, a there's an uprising. There's it, it, it's I won't don't want to spoil it for anyone who wants to go and read, but it really goes as far as you think it can go, and then more, and then more, and then more, but. It just strikes me as this kind of thing where it, it feels like, in the best way, a kind of like that, that Twitter allowed you to create this kind of, you know, like when you go on a long car trip and mm. you develop some in-jokes and by the end of the car trip, there's a few things people can say. Maybe one of the doors wasn't shutting properly and you you develop some kind of like shorthand. All right, sh- Billy door shut. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then to everyone else, they're just like this complete, the love disappears from their eyes when you make those jokes. But for the four people in the car, it's this lovely bonding thing. It felt like Twitter allowed you to just compl- continue to add compartments onto the car and then kind of weld them shut with everyone inside <laughs> to create this like incredibly bonding, slightly traumatic experience that nonetheless, by the end, there was a group of strangers who had this, from what you're saying, like a kind of shared thematic vocabulary about, it's like a, it's like a TV series that only they watched and they're not even sure if they watched it. Maybe they hallucinated it, but like it, it, it seems, it seems like something can only happen in the age of Twitter. And that's not me trying to take away your, no, no. your, your, your skill in writing it and going, well, actually we've got to thank uh, the, the people at Twitter for this. But I, I ju- it just seems to me like you really sort of jumped on this, the possibilities of like, Serial microfiction, if I can come up with the most boring term for it. No, it's hyper serialized. You're absolutely right. And what it does is it's because it wasn't planned. That was the thing about it. I had sort of some grand arcs and stuff, if I can call them that. Uh, But it was very much accreted in the same way as, you know, um, a lake bed sediment becomes sandstone. Like I would be on the bus in the morning on the way to work, which gave me time to do about 10 tweets. So the instalments, the daily instalments would, you know, be between sort of eight and 17 tweets long. And I'd work out, you know, what the sort of the climax for that morning would be. Uh, And then I'd build the tweets around it. And then I'd sort of have the next day to ruminate it. And like I say, I never really thought very much in advance. It just accreted piece by piece and statement by statement as well, which I think is crucial. Because when you're stacking tweets, you're stacking ideas. Um, which is actually very liberating in terms of structure. Yeah, because I want to say, like, since I started 
following you on Twitter and I was kind of aware of your stuff because of various mutual friends that were retweeting stuff. And so I got to sort of like, I started these weird sort of fragments of world started kind of bleeding into my feed and kind of like disrupting the uh, n- n- normal uh, angry bun fight that is Twitter with just uh, bizarre uh, headless go- golems made out of <laughs> pigeons and cement and things. Just just these this sort of weird world that was so, so interesting. And I, I'm going to try not to fanboy too much because um, that'll make you feel uncomfortable. But I do think when you said... I, I want to come back to that thing you said about it being very liberating. But I think I've found... The world building and the idea creation that you do uh, on Twitter, I found it so incredibly inspiring. As someone who sort of like gets very paralysed by, oh, I'm, I'm going to write this morning, am I going to do it well? Does this fit into the plot? To just have these, this kind of like spreading like buckshot, these ideas, this kind of your willingness to kind of embrace stuff, even if it's, bonkers or silly or it's not clear where this is going to just like follow that um to follow those ideas and to to trust in them it seems it it, is sort of it really reminds me of why I love writing and especially genre writing in the first place I was wondering um I was wondering if there are any writers like have you had any what have been your sort of influences uh in that, are there any writers that kind of like gave you a little, have given you that kind of kick that you're then feeding back into your work? Or is it something that you feel there's a bunch of writers you love, but you don't particularly write like them or? That's really interesting. Um, I think, I mean, an example I always give when I'm asked about influences, um, and this is in terms of the first time I ever felt thunderously like I was reading the exact type of book I would like to create uh, was reading Pedido Street Station by China Mayville on the toilet in my second year of university um, or drastically hung over and it just occurred to me um, that every page was like glucose syrup Um, it was needlessly imaginative um yeah completely profligate um and i felt so <sighs> do you think you got that from the do you think you got that from the first page of it or was it like did you get away in and then go oh uh, whoa whoa what's happening or it was about 50 pages in i thought well this isn't going to stop <laughs> <laughs> i thought maybe it was this great initial hit um that you know would then settle into something a little more paced um, but I say that's why I would say rather than like the nourishment of sort of a roast dinner, it was like a pure liter of high glucose syrup, in that it was pure energy and it didn't stop. It's such I, an exhausting read. Yeah, I I wonder whether that is also to do with the fact that um, new uh, Crobazon and uh, Baslag and that world already existed when he came to write that book. You know, he'd written stuff in that world before um well, that, because that, that first page is like there's like i rem- i think for me because the reason i brought it up is because i think for me when i was reading that book that it was when i hit there's a mention of just like 
he's just going there's a marketplace scene or something like that and he as he sweeps across it very quickly he mentions like uh, st- like steaming constructs, I think is just like, and then and that's part of a long list of stuff. And I'm like, wait, what? Uh, so what? What do you mean constructs? But then he moves on, and we're we're going on to something else. And you come back later, and you get the very sort of nature of uh, you know the uh, remade and constructs and things like that. But um, it was the fact that he was prepared to kind of like throw a lot of stuff, kind of a away, right? And then like you have to keep reading to find stuff out later on yeah that's um uh, one thing i'd like to talk about in a bit is um something you picked up on there which is that's a setting that pre-existed for him and actually i i like to start with a single detail and work outwards from that i think if i tried to create settings wholesale and then write within them i, I would get paralyzed very quickly but more uh, so that that that's an interesting one to talk about but what you mentioned there, where he throws away the steam and context, I remember exactly that he does that a lot in the scar um when he's talking about the geography of the world. I remember there's a line where he uh, talks about um a strange crocodile city and then just leaves it that's like, well, <laughs> a city shaped like a crocodile is it inhabited by them but that's it you never know more. I actually I wrote something about this for tour.com a while ago um it's uh, something in genre fiction, uh, which I call Chekhov's Gundark. Um, mm. So Chekhov's gun, right? If it's on the wall in scene one, it must be fired by... Uh, sorry, if it's on the wall in act one, it has to be fired by act three. Mm. Um, and uh, he, Chekhov, was writing to a correspondent. He's met for more than once. But it was about... It was a warning against extraneous details and things. Saying, you know, basically... If you're going to take the toys out, pack them away again. Yeah. Uh, and I think in literary fiction, uh, which is what we call writing set in the real world, but which doesn't involve cowboys or murder, um, then, yeah, it's probably very good advice. But in a world where you're not familiar uh, with the basic concepts, or, or many of the concepts in it, so take um, the Bass Lag world and the remade, um, in a world where you're not familiar with the fact that criminals can be uh, judicially surgerized To have their torsos reversed. Yeah. like uh, And that's a light one. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're not familiar with that, then uh, one of the worst things you can do with sci-fi uh, or fantasy is um, to do that strange thing where the author steps out of a naturalistic bit of storytelling to info dump on you. Uh, it's, you know, uh, just as if you were describing our world, you wouldn't stop to explain what a car was. Um, <laughs> yeah, the- that idea that you would, yeah, that so someone picks up a telephone and then we would get kind of like an, a history of the telephone and how, like, vo- I mean, I wouldn't be able to, I'd have to do research to be able to put that in my story anyway. But yeah, absolutely. That, that thing where you break out of the, um, the dramatic present and the characters sort of like position as well because they're not thinking about how a phone works to, to explain what's going on and the reason i call that chekhov's gundark so i think the best example of it is in star wars uh, empire strikes back um so i think some of the world building in star wars is fantastic because it's just tips of icebergs han solo says you look strong enough to pull the ears off a gundark and that's it if it said why 
you look strong enough to pull the ears off a Gundark. You know, those six-legged bat things we've been having problems with in this base on the ice planet of Hoth. It would lose its <laughs> magic. Um, see, I, I think you have to, in genre fiction, you have to circumvent Chekhov's rule, and you can hang things up that never get used just to remind people that there's a much bigger world than the frame you're looking in. Yeah, although, because... So I want to challenge you on that because you said the worst thing you can do in one of the worst things you can do in genre fiction is to put in an info dump where you just explain what's going on. How does this? Why does the Star Wars title crawl work then? Why does that work? Because I, 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 and it's a genuine question because I think they're great and we get it means we can start the story in a really interesting position. However, I, I, I know that that is quote unquote wrong to, to open a movie with some text that explains what's going on that moves very slowly and then go into the story and yet I think it works what what's going on there you're dead right to challenge me on it actually because I'm just thinking about it um we watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy at the weekend and it struck me uh how Fellowship of the Ring begins with a 15 minute history of a piece of jewelry um that's absolutely exhaustive and it's very artificial and it's very strange in terms of pacing. And you quite right with the Star Wars title crawl. I suppose you can excuse it if it's at the start of something more than if it's not because it doesn't interrupt anything. But it really does absolutely contra- contravent. Can you contravent something? I've got no. Con- it I kicks a know. hole in <laughs> yes. the idea of show don't tell, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm so- I'm sorry, my daughter's um. This is a, a sound <laughs> puzzle, and we've lost the pieces for it. And it's um, and it's sa- it's light activated, and now it just various instruments play. Old MacDonald has a farm at random points. Is that the bassoon? That's a tuba. Okay, um, but yeah, on. unfortunately, it goes off at random times, and also when clouds, because there's a light, because there's this. Uh, there's this uh, sun window above us. Whenever a cloud passes across the sky, a random instrument will play from the other room. Do you oh. know what? I have to tell you this? Yeah. Because uh, I was reading about this this morning. Uh- <laughs> I'm burying it at the bottom of a pile of... Uh, yeah. Loads of early vertebrates had a fully formed eye socket, a third one, the very crown of their head. Uh, that's because a lot of them are bottom feeders and it evolved naturally as a sight organ for looking for the silhouettes of predators moving above. Yee. I know. So they had like a vestigial... Not even vestigial. If you look at some of the old placoderms, which were some of the earliest jawed fishes, um, you might be familiar with some of the things like um, uh, Dunkleosteus, which was that big sort of beak-faced brute... Uh, from the Devonian and, and had big sort of shearing jaws. But some of the earlier placoderms had a, a third eye socket in the top of the head. And do you know what's crazy? What? So most people, uh, you think of reptiles, you think, okay, well, lizards, snakes, turtles, crocodiles. Those are the big four, right? There's a fifth type of reptile. Uh, it diverged from the squamatids, which are the snakes and lizards, a long time ago. It looks a lot like a lizard. There's only one species in the world. It's in New Zealand. It's called the Tuatara, which in Maori means like a ridged back. And they, amazingly, of all the reptiles, still have a vestigial third eye. It's covered in skin, but it can... It has, I believe, 
uh, a tiny retina and lens uh, under the skin. So and- they can perceive the difference between light and yes. dark? Yes, on the top <sighs> of their head. That's am- can you imagine? Wouldn't that be frigging awesome? Like in a... Say we're doing like a science fiction or uh, fantasy like village or species. Uh, a kind of like a bipedal or kind of like sentient le- uh, level uh, civilization where because of being, say, constant predation from dragons, say, yeah. uh, they have retained, as it has been, they've retained a third eye in the top of their head to be aware of the huge shadows kind of like blackening the sky. So you then, we then know that this planet or this uh, group, this species are that there's another apex predator above them that typically flies overhead by the fact but the our first clue that this is that this happens is that when we meet them they've all got they've all got kind of like uh, the remnants of eyes or maybe the even the very first sign is that people consider it a sign of trust in the people around them to wear a hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, the, the the idea, the equivalent of... It's the equivalent of kind of, like, uh, showing, shaking hands to show you've got no weapon that kind of... Yeah, you're... This... I'll wear a hat around you because I feel safe around you. Yeah. Yeah, because then, actually, you... There, it could even be... It can even be a kind of, like, ancestral memory. So maybe the threat in its original form isn't there anymore, but there's still these kind of uh, remnants of it. That's, I, I, that's and that's, so- that's where we go to starting from a single detail, right? And that's often how it will happen for me. Oh. Because you're like building, you're like building a, a, you get this image, this one thing that sparks something, and then you're, it's, uh, is it like you're building like a house it can live in? Well, let, let's go back to paleontology. Um, it's like so many dinosaurs or the like, we know from a single bit of a, a neck bone. Uh, just a fragment of vertebrae or a tooth. Uh, and there's so much that you can extrapolate from from just a tooth. Uh, what shape it is, how large it is, what's its tensile strength. Um, you know, how loose is it in the socket? Is it due to be replaced by others? And once you know these things, you build up a picture of the animal's diet, its size, its likely anatomy... Um, and that's it. You you take that one detail and you reconstruct the whole organism around it, I suppose. And it just if there's one thing you think is cool, one idea you think is cool, um, it, it's like the birthday. What would happen if a whole planet had to celebrate a man's birthday and do nothing else? Well, there'd be no trees. It'll be milled to confetti, etc., etc. So it's building an animal from one one bit of its body so you're that's i i, I yeah i'd love to draw down into this because that's really fascinating because i think the the example of that that i think most stuck with me in sort of other people's work was roger zelazny yeah wrote his his um st- his novel uh the lord of light uh where which is all this that's awesome it's this it's, it's, it's this massive story about like there's crashed uh colonist ships who've like taken over the kind of like uh the uh kind of uh, hindu pantheon of gods but also christian pantheon as well implied although you never see that but you get the sense that i think like the ship's chaplain has become like a necromancer on another continent yeah it doesn't happen in the story and has gotten nukes but but it's only, it, it, and it's but it's it's referenced but it it doesn't happen in the story there's so much exactly what you're saying that there's a bunch of stuff that they just throw away but Roger Zelazny said that the whole story arose out of a pun 
that ha- a no, really, really bad pun in, in the story where they've got a um there's a, a member of like the royalty and they've taken on like the various titles from uh you know from you know there's elements of it that feel a bit like a kind of uh a sort of feudal India kind of like pseudo like from various different parts of history that have been like consciously adopted by the original colonists mm. who are now who are masquerading as gods so you know it's it they're, they're, they're very much kind of pastiches but um there's the there's you know and there's a an aristocratic class and the uh the local shan uh, goes to you can go and there's prayer wheels and you pay into them and eventually when you die your body your consciousness they have the technology to transplant it into a new body and if you've been virtuous then the prayer machine will give you a better body and a better rebirth um and so the shan goes in and he gets this body and as he walks out in the new oh. body <laughs> he has a seizure and it then has the line to deliver this, and then the fit hit the Shan. Are you serious? Because I, I, I thought that was funny, but I didn't realise that was Rogers. The well, so wow. Ro- Rogers Elasny may be joking. A, a lot of people talking about the book said, oh, he's obviously joking. He didn't write the entire book based on this one pun. Rogers Elasny said, I wrote the book. The whole idea of the book came out of him getting that pun and then going, what's gone on here? And building the world around it. I now, would be very inclined to believe that because it sounds plausible, right? Given yeah. on what we've been talking about, I've had ideas that have come out of the stupidest bit of grit, you know. Uh, but it's, I guess, an idea is something can sometimes be just something really anomalous. So what you're saying is like, what wouldn't be inspiring to you is for you to like set up a set up a kind of like offline or a wiki kind of document and start going, okay. So what kind of um what kind of governmental system is my world going to have? Like building mm. from the top down doesn't really you don't think it's a good way of I I think it can be a brilliant way. I find myself hamstrung by I find myself suddenly hugely disenthused with the details. Um so it's something I'm writing at the moment. I did so I'm already quite a way into it and thought, well, if I'm going to talk about this city, I should probably work out how its political system works. And I worked out their sort of various parliament chambers and how their votes work. And it was quite a fun exercise for now. To be honest, I was procrastinating from something else. So it was fine. But I couldn't have started with that. I couldn't have begun from, okay, this is how the world is ruled and et cetera, et cetera. Um, in fact, that whole story, um, that began with a concept, which was when I was at university in 2002, shortly before I read Perdida Street Station, in fact, uh, I was eating a fried breakfast in halls with some friends. I said, wouldn't it be great if just under this building... They had a massive cavern full of boiling oil and they just dipped all the food down in buckets and then you just got a random one back up. (laughs) And then that really stuck with me and I started writing a whole society around that idea. Like, Why on earth would a culture use that as a means of civic food distribution even though it's desperately inefficient? And genuinely, genuinely, the, the, the next book I'm writing 
all expanded from that concept. That's so it, and so it's like it's it's it, it's about having like a like an image that doesn't make sense. And instead of because I think a tendency when I've spoken to a lot of writers, um, especially people who are like working on a book, and especially people who are working on science fiction and fantasy, they'll often come up with some ideas, and then there'll be bits of them that don't make sense, and their impulse and their efforts are drawn towards like flattening those ironing those kind of like creases out and getting rid of them so it makes more sense uh and then they often get and then they often get is it that's really interesting now i'm thinking about it they often get blocked um during or immediately after that process and perhaps it's because they've what they've done is made their world boring whereas instead of trying to get rid of that thing and they go well it's really dumb i've got people riding on uh blind ostriches but why on earth would you choose them as your main form of transport why why would you have flightless birds that cannot see what would i'm gonna to have to change it to horses that would be that horses are you look at the history of the world horses are just would beat them on every like surely they would develop something that was closer to the horse and then they're bored and i or they they think they're stuck but there's actually just nothing there's no gear there's no kink there's no odd thing that requires answers or extra pieces added to it in order to make sense yeah and i can i ask can you remember um what the uh what the did you have a similar thing for the sea hates a coward your that's your um uh is it can i say maritime undead is that like a genre yeah i I would say it's one of the better examples of the marxist diesel punk whalecore horror (laughs) genre um especially the humor uh, wing of it. Anyway. We've got to we've yeah. got to go down those genre trees because that's how we get our <laughs> Amazon number one. Yeah. It's like like number one in whale oh, in that category. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so that one is. I do remember how I got the idea for that. Um, so uh, I had. Uh, I was going to explain what the book's about, but yeah, if I'm going do. to answer the question correctly, this should explain what the books are about. So let's see if if I manage. Um, I had the idea um, years ago, actually, for a horror story where um, they're laying the first transatlantic telegraph cable. Which is like, I just want to say, that's so fascinating that that's your interest, because when <laughs> I've heard all that historical stuff about it, I was like, holy fuck. Fuck, whoever thought that that was... Why did they think that... I mean, I know that they did it eventually, but I was like, what an audacious, crazy thing to do, right? It's so extreme. And um, it's that wonderful... There's something... I mean, there's a lot to be disgusted by uh, in um, sort of, you know, early post-industrial colonialism. uh, But some of the sheer arrogance of British engineering, you know is something to behold, even if you can't put any ethical approval behind it. And that idea, let's just lay a pipe across an ocean, is pretty huge. And I love the sort of hubris that comes with it. So in this story, they're laying the first... Um, and this is the story I thought of years ago, not the one I end up writing. They are laying a telegraph cable. They write, but they sail past where New York is meant to be and carry on for another six weeks. And there's just open ocean. And I thought, how horrible would it be if the ship 
just kept going forever into infinite sea and it just got less and less earthly not in a lovecraftian way just endless gray sea um and that really stuck with me um and i out of that i thought well how could you how could you deparanormalize that so i thought okay so what if um you had uh, a future earth that was connected to a water world which is completely covered in water uh, by a sort of a you know a land anchored or a sea anchored wormhole of some sort and what if the society capable of building that wormhole fell apart but the wormhole itself stayed open eventually you'd have people sending fishing boats through to fish the almost inexhaustible resources of this water covered globe but of course it would have horrendous giant you know terrifying sea life on yeah and so the boats would get bigger and bigger and you'd have this society this sort of crude society sending bigger and bigger fishing boats through to this hellish watery place um you know in the way that the sort of the whaling fleets the early 20th century just couldn't conceive that the world could run out of whales (laughs) you know that sort of conservation just didn't enter into people's thought processes what if you supplied that sort of society with an almost limitless supply of whales. What sort of commercial fishing industry would come out of that? And who would want to work on it? Who would want to work on those boats? Who would volunteer to go through into that world? And I thought, well, no one. How horrendous would it be if the sentence for political sedition was to be executed and then reanimated uh, and having to go and do it as a dead person? And so that was where the idea for Schneider Rack came from. And he's a guy who wakes up six months into his service aboard this mile-long factory ship. And he was either a librarian who was framed or a dangerous rebel leader. He can't really work out which, so he decides to go with the latter just to give himself the benefit of the doubt. And that's... Can I just, like, go back into that a second? Because I think one of the things that'd be useful for, for people is there's the big idea, but then you sort of like you you narrow it down into one person with a with a problem like that that's a, <laughs> you know because that is like that is for the kind of like uh i guess like hard-boiled detective waking up with a hangover kind of thing there's you know you can't really go much further than waking up dead dead <laughs> not being able to remember where you're like com- completely kind of like isolated in this uh, other world what how did you get from like the because i think like lots of us have had like huge ideas where you go wouldn't it be cool if da, 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 da. but then it's like finding but then it's just it's like just having like five thousand chocolate cakes in front of you and it's like you end up like buridan's ass you just can't <laughs> go towards any of them because they all seem equally scrumptious so how do you get from that big idea to going who is going to... How, how, how is it not just an encyclopedia of this world? How do you get a person's story that's leading you through it? How did you get get that? Well, in, in the wider sense, I suppose, it's throwing a rock onto the sheet and seeing where the ripples come out from. Um... Sheets don't ripple. Sorry, it's a very bad analogy. Was, I'll give you a better I wasn't going to... I, was, I, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I gave you the benefit of the doubt and assumed it was just me, but yeah. God. I was thinking, you know those analogies they used to explain Einstein to kids? With like rubber sheets and balls that are Yeah, planets? yeah, no, I get I was you, sort yeah. of going for that. But yeah. 
didn't quite make it. Um, I'll give you a better answer. Um, so my dad was uh, an abstract painter, and he um, he w- he became an art teacher, uh, and he taught me sort of draw and stuff. I wasn't very good, uh, but he had a good go at teaching me. And he, the thing he relayed from his education, which stuck with me, even though I've sort of gone down the writing route rather than visual, um, is he was taught that uh, the more restrictions you have on your work, the more creative you're going to be. Um, and that, that, that sounds like a real platitude, but if you think about it, you know, the smaller the range of decisions you have to make, the more thought you can put into those decisions. And in the case of Sea Hates Coward, um, the Schneider Act stories, um, there was a huge limitation on me to start off with because after the Daniel Barker thing that we talked about, uh, so I was commissioned to write something. I said, would you want to have a go at writing uh, a a book? And this was uh, Rebellion publishing their Abaddon imprint. And they said... um, you know, we've actually got an opening for a book about zombies. Would you write something about zombies? And having never been published before, the opportunity to have something in print was like, you know, I'll write a book about dog's nose if you want me to. Like, of course. I'd, I was, I'd been quite over zombies for quite a long time. Um, I just think it's a bit played out, really. Uh, so I was thinking to myself, well, what can I do with zombies Essentially, if I have to write about zombies, how am I going to do it? And that's when I remembered the old ocean setting I'd thought of and thought, well... Oh, so you... Ah, right. So that... And that was when two ideas came together to make a third. I sewed them into a Frankenstein, yeah. I thought, well, that old... That idea had just been a setting. And do you know what? I had originally intended to... The first time I thought of that was 2006. It was te- ten years later, I wrote See It's a Coward. Because it was just a setting. It was just an idea. Like, the story about the... um. The transatlantic cable is like, yeah, that's spooky, but where's the personal story in that? You know, what? where's the person with a problem, as you say? that well, kind of is none. But then with this whole, okay, I have to include zombies as well. Well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? If you woke up in a world of infinite water and you were dead. So, yeah, that came from marrying the two. And I think that, that that's... So I'm so I wish I had a, a, a sort of like more insightful thing to say than that's really interesting. But it, it's, <laughs> I'm just processing this as you as you say it, which is why I love having these chats because I discover stuff as I'm talking. But I I love the stuff you're saying about restriction. It really uh, resonates a lot with uh, sort of my interest in. Uh, I think I've talked about it. I may have not even talked about it on the a podcast before, but like the Ulapo and putting arbitrary restrictions on language, like writing a whole novel, uh, Georges Perec's La Disparation, an entire novel written without using the letter E. Um, the cre- you have to, it, it forces you down certain tracks because you have to rethink how you're going to approach stuff. It refreshes the language. It- when tweets used to be 140 characters. Yeah. That you had to think. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, yeah, and it's it is, and and it and it becomes an art form, and it's just like any sport. Like uh, tennis would be less interesting if you could just throw the ball, and then the other person could go and collect it and throw it back, and there wasn't really a score, and there weren't you couldn't be out. You know, the lines and the restrictions create something more compelling, and then they create a, a kind of arms race within those restrictions. But what I was going to say was, it, I think it's so interesting that you had a setting and then the and and 
it, I mean, it wasn't like you spent 10 years going, if only I could make, you know, like sweating every night, your walls kind of like covered in scrawled formulae as you're like, no, no, it's not working. <laughs> like, like smashing canvases over um, as, as thunder kind of like uh, rocked the sky outside. <laughs> but it wasn't until it wasn't that you had to cut a piece out and make it easier to, to use the world. It, it's actually that you have this difficult, this world that has all these restrictions on it already. And then you bring in another restriction and that actually reduce because what you're saying is then when you reduce the scope of options down to a few then instead of having this analysis paralysis where you could go well you could write about anything it's like okay you're gonna write about this but what happens next you create a sort of mental venn diagram can't you it's okay so it's a story in a world where giraffes are worshipped but it also has to feature the orphan son of two vicars <laughs> you know, there's only so many plots that can fill those criteria. I'm immediately uh, imagining uh, they're kind of like missionaries on some kind of who crashed on this uh, a planet, um, got cut off from their uh, from their kind of like uh, their roving kind of like uh, hyperspace church, and um, there's been various like there's been like generational gaps where the original <laughs> teachings have kind of like fallen apart i'm thinking about like kind of examples of like uh missionaries that then you have this syncretism that where like local uh uh interpretations of what they're what they're doing i i remember hearing a story about a missionary who was sort of found after not being in contact with his church for like 15 years and was no longer teaching the gospel and um every service was um people uh, people he but he'd taken a full upright piano with him and the services were uh <laughs> were people dancing down the cent cent center of an aisle with swords while he while someone played <laughs> champagne charlie is my name on the piano and that was the work that was the, their, their worship and it she was it sounded like it was a great communal space for everyone to hang out and have a good time right that's wonderful but they but but it would, it it just it became something that served them rather than the conversion purposes, and you, so you can imagine, uh, you can imagine that scenario where you have these these orphaned children of the orphan child of the original uh, of the original uh, people who went there to spread this religion, who now doesn't has only got a few kind of charred texts from the crash. So perhaps they had um, their their parents' uh, Bible. But the cover was burnt off. Uh, but they had a picture book about giraffes because they're a kid. So they glued that cover onto the Bible to <laughs> yes. keep it safe. But when that was then transcribed generations down the line, they thought it was vital that it had the giraffes Because on the they've cover. got no idea. They don't know which bits are inerrant and which bits are brought in by human error. So they just go, okay, all of this is... They think the giraffe is the image of God. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, it'd be, uh, it'd be amazing. And then you have this world. And I suppose, you know, giraffes can see above the tree canopy potentially. You know, so they you can... We uh, have that Lamarckian idea of them, their necks growing longer over the generations as they reach closer to God. Well, there's, giraffes are often, I've seen them cited as, as, as proof 
that God exists on the basis that they cannot possibly have come be just horses who suddenly got a long neck because the giraffe brain is a spun it, it's like it's like a sponge so it can hold blood in so when the giraffe can dips its head if it had a brain like a zebra or a horse when it dipped its head it would um it would just black out from blood loss so it's its brain has got a uh, is a bit more spongy. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a, a giraffeologist is listening now going, no, 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 you're misrepresenting giraffes. But then the, the, the argument is this cannot be just like an incremental kind of like development because it's a completely different uh, brain structure. So, you know, you can, if, if that can happen on our earth, the idea that the, the, these giraffes are somehow... Uh, Venerated yeah. as tangible proof of the creator. But no one's ever seen one either. Wow. And see, this is... Um... So they must, have, they must have examples of creatures that are analogous to the giraffe, but not totally a giraffe. alien fauna. Yeah, wow. See, I, now here's the thing. This is why I love um, science fiction stories that involve deep time uh, and change over deep time. In so, can you cultures. just define what deep time is? Yeah, um, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I understand it as time longer than a single person's perception. Cool. Um, so, you know, anything between sort of several generations to millions of years. And um, it's quite often you get it in sort of post apocalypse stories or in stories of. Uh, especially in hard sci-fi. Um, actually, a perfect example I read recently, uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky, Children of Time, um, which is a book about a terraforming um, experiment where they've terraformed a planet to be like Earth, and they're going to release some monkeys on it along with a DNA retrovirus that will allow them to experience accelerated evolution. Uh, but the ship is sabotaged, the monkeys are never released, but spiders living on the planet are subjected to the retrovirus. So when humans fleeing a devastated Earth, thousands of years hence, go to this planet, they find a culture of spiders living there, which I have to say, Adrian is a superb zoological mind. That's what he studied, and this is so brilliantly realised. But it's this story... Why I'm bringing it up as an example is the story of how things how cultures are created over thousands or even millions of years um, and how species evolve, uh, it's all about extrapolation. It's all about how far can you take something. It's going back to the, the people with the eyes on the top of their head. You know, if you have flying apex predators, how many implications does that then have on like a gentrified Edwardian society <laughs> that makes it different from the one we're familiar with? So, so okay, the... the there's so many ways I want to like branch off from this because you now you said how does it make it because that's often what we see is we've got some established kind of uh, genres like cyberpunk or steampunk or dieselpunk or uh, and we have like alternate histories but a lot of them just sort of uh, sort of drag and drop uh, other bits and pieces from a different bit of genre, you know, like vampires or whatever, into them. Mm. Um, and then not much of the world changes, which, of course, you can do with a seek, like, a, a, I guess, the secret history genre, where you go, these, actually, the explanation for 
the anomalies in history is that these these things are going on in the background. Uh, so of course it's the same because this is our world. We're saying that the vampires are part of this world and they explain a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense to you. Um, but then there's the other, and I'm, I, I suppose in, I, I suppose I don't want to just uh, subtweet. Was it was it was Bright the name of that the Netflix series? Oh, Orc Cops. Yeah, yeah. where. You have a world where oh, this made me so cross when they reference Shrek. Are you going to talk about them referencing Shrek? Um, we can we can, we can go uh, ra- look <laughs> looks like world building errors are on the menu, boys. Uh, like, but yeah, great. That's a great example because now we can go we can go into this and say when it does and doesn't matter. That in the background to uh, Bright, I believe, is that there's there's been like a human orc war, thousand like. Generations, a long, long time before, right? Yeah, Is that right. Yeah. There's, I'm with a, like a whole Dark Lord scenario, and I think it's like a couple of thousand years, yeah, kind of thing. And, yeah. and now we're in approximate modern day technology. There is magic. There are uh, the Fey and um, fairy folk and elves, and there are also orcs. Uh, orcs, because of this and kind of ancestral shame, uh, are a subclass. Um, but then in LA. Uh, an orc is becoming a part of the LAPD for the and first time. And there's racism, yes. Yeah, and, and the, yeah, the way orcs are coded uh, is is very problematic as well. Um, it's quite blunt, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But what? So, yeah, go go on. What's the you you your objection to? Uh, yes. Well, I know your which are many and grave. Of course, I'm not suggesting you've only got one objection to it. But what this isn't this is a form of world building where clearly to give it. It's, you know, the most charitable uh, viewing. Someone has gone, hey, wouldn't it be cool if... Someone has literally asked the question, what if orcs still existed? And I I, I love orcs. And at times, Bright was nearly really good. Because some of the ideas... What did it do well? Well, um, so the idea of uh, fairies being like vermin uh, was, uh, again... Problematically handled in some of the dialogue, yeah, but the I- so Will Smith uh, uh, smashes a fairy, I believe, with a broom, saying, "Fairy lives don't matter today." Yeah, yeah, I whoa, <laughs> it was. And then what is he? Because he must. This is the thing. Is then does does the so does does like is there a fairy lives matter movement? Is because Will Smith clearly thinks he's referencing something. Otherwise, he's just literally. He's like, otherwise he's literally saying, I am killing you. Right? Yeah. So, huh. so he, in a he, parallel universe, people are still fighting yeah. for civil rights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what is, yeah, either there is a parallel like movement to the Black Lives Matter movement, in which case he's being, Just we don't like that character, right? He's like horrendous. Or what is he, what is he referencing? And that's, that's, it was the second stage of extrapolation that never seemed to connect in that film. So the example um, uh, began with, this, yeah, as you say, it's thousands of years ago they had this event. Human and orc culture. It's not like, okay, Shadowrun, the role-playing game. I was going to mention Shadowrun. There's a reason it. they have that stuff happen in the 90s. Because and- it can all, you know, you can have orcs and elves in society and it all starts there. But if you do it from thousands of years ago, you can't, so what happens is at one point, just to say, so Shadowrun, so just to explain for people who are, oh yeah, like, yeah. The, 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 I know there's people um, who listen who uh, 
only read literary fiction and won't get any of these nerd references. Last week, Joe Dunthorne had to stop me to define the term DM. He was like, I'm sorry, uh, that means Dungeon Master listeners. So I realised that's the level we're going. In Shadowrun, which is a cyberpunk fantasy, um, there are um, orcs and elves, and it's very similar to Bright, but the explanation is, and it's kind of, the explanation is that there's been a kind of... uh, there's been a kind of like divergence event where it turns out that elves and orcs and dwarves were kind of always around us, but that magic was hidden. They were just other people, just some of us were d- are dwarves and some of us are um, elves and some of us are orcs. And then there's this, is that the law, right? And then there's this event yeah, where it's almost we... it's kind of an other kin thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and then... And then it's just revealed that some humans are orcs and they are discovering that for the first time themselves. So there's like a divergence where magic returns to the world and we discover that they've been around us all the time. So that's why it hasn't affected history explicitly is because we because we didn't know. Nobody knew. And that's your second stage of extrapolation. They've done the thing we talked about earlier where they find their crease and rather than ironing it out, they spray some fixative on it. Yeah. They hang a lampshade on it and they make that part of the firmament of their narrative, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's that's lovely. What uh, In Bright, that, that doesn't happen. So Will Smith, at one point, calls his orc mate Shrek-looking. And so that implies that Shrek exists as a film in that setting. <laughs> Which, and- like, how unbelievably crass would it be for Shrek to exist as a film? When even, you know, this got point... Uh, someone said that on Twitter, and a load of people said, um, well, Song of the South got made. And yes, okay, that is a parallel on one sense... But if you really think about it, it's not that Shrek would be an offensive racial caricature in a universe with orcs. It's that the plot wouldn't make sense. Because in Shrek, the whole um, conceit, and it's been a while now, although I have listened to All Star by Smash Mouth I'll get, I'll get, I'll get the, 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 Shrek, the Shrek fans will be, will be uh, they're wetting their poison pen nibs already. I, I don't like to anger the Shrek they, fans. They, they, they've just reached across... Uh, Hallelujah is playing the Shrek song. <laughs> <laughs> but they're in, in Shrek, they are... The conceit is that they're fantasy creatures. Yes. Uh, and that the fantasy creatures are being rounded up and sort of ghettoized in a swamp. Um, so that conceit can only work if you're watching it with the frame of reference that these are fictional creatures. If you wrote the screenplay to Shrek... In a world where orcs walk amongst us, it would just be weird. Because that, because Zoo, so Zoo City, I, I think we might have. Yeah, with the Marabou's orcs. Yeah, so the great thing about Zoo City is in Zoo City by uh, Lauren Biakes, I think that's how I pronounce her name, um, there's this bit where um, carrot. So basically, some people, if you do something evil like kill someone, um, shadows come up from the ground and this only starts happening in like 2008 or something shadows come up from the ground and try and suck you into goodness knows where probably hell and then a animal sort of spirit protector will appear out of nowhere and chase them off and you now have this creature with you uh that also gives you some minor power and it's like a sort of a cross between a patronus and a probation officer yeah 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 it has lo- it has lots of so and one of the things that the novel does is it has in between chapters little snatches of real world essays and mo- imdb movie reviews 
just people reacting to the fact that this phenomenon phenomena phenomenon has suddenly started happening and one of the things is someone has written a big essay going uh how do we now read uh uh, uh his dark materials on the oh, basis that a lot yeah, of yeah. stuff in his dark materials appears to be happening and this is okay this gets me on to another of my great loves um and this is stuff i am about to um about to do some really big projects around which is fictional non-fiction and that those essays in Zoo City are a perfect example because uh, I love the idea of writing incredibly detailed and sincere non-fiction writing for a world that doesn't exist and I I love to read it I find it hugely immersive like um I'm trying to think, like, in RPG source books and things, you know, the things that appear to be in-universe texts yeah, are just lovely. Yeah, I really like that as well. I, I, I know, and there's some people, there's some people who, there's some people who do, who, who cannot get on with with that. But sometimes those are the, they don't like it when you're reading a story and then the story's interrupted by one, one some of those things. Yeah, I think the it's, it's best to fully immerse. Um, so, uh, the the big project I did, I did last year, which I loved, was the hundred best video games, oh, which never existed. That, yes. uh, which is it's um, it's uh, I, I, actually the best thing about the book are the illustrations, which were done by real um, games industry artists. So these are people who spend most of the time working really meticulously on one game, and they were suddenly allowed to illustrate all these fictional ones, and it was lovely seeing what they did. Um, but the the concept of the book is it's a you know those sort of, you know, books that get knocked out at Christmas where it's like, oh, the 100 best dogs or, yeah. you know, and you've got like a page of text and a facing page illustration of this sort of big listicle. So the idea is it's one of those and it's the 100 most notable games made between the year 1980 and the present day. Uh, and it's really in depth and it goes into their developers and the sort of the uh, the marketing controversies they had, how they were reviewed, what the press said. Um, whether they've had a recent resurgence of people playing them on YouTube, uh, what was wrong with the control schemes, uh, whether there were notable glitches. And it's very, very in-depth, but none of the games are at all real. <laughs> uh, they are all completely fictional. And the, my brief mentally for writing the book was if a tired uncle picked this up for their daughter on Christmas Eve, thinking, oh, well, they, they like video games, they'll like this... Would they be able to tell at first glance this was not a book of real games? <laughs> that yeah, I I and that actually did that start that started as an that started originally that was another it was uh, another Twitter Twitter threads, yeah and, and and was it maybe this is a silly question but was it something that when you started it you thought oh well, I'm going to start writing these uh, these uh, fake synopses of games um, on Twitter and probably I'll get a book out of this or no I I. I genuinely expect it to be an afternoon's fun, that one. And it really got how, out of hand. How long did it take you to write that list on Twitter? Because I think... How it was many... a thousand, exactly My one thousand. Uh, that took me... Um, gosh, I started on December the 5th and I ended on, I think... March the second. Yikes! <laughs> wow! Uh, and my dad died in the middle of that. Oh my so gosh! 
it, I had a couple of weeks out and thought, do you know what, actually? What's going to get me into the general mental flow of living again? And it's coming up with 20 fictional video games every day. That's so cool. It's quite therapeutic, actually. Uh, but I, I love your um one-like equals lists, actually. Oh, I, I've been doing... Thank you. I've been doing some just random... I was in... There's a, there was a website. It's not kept up anymore, but a blog called um Dungeon Dozens that oh, yeah. did... Uh, Every day, just had a blog post that was something like things found, treasures found in the belly of the beast. And there's 12 things that are found inside a monster's belly. When you Oh, that's great. And they're all flavour rich, but setting non-specific. Things found on the first level of the dungeon are... My favourite one that I completely uh, ripped off the title for was um, uh, Death Conditions... For the Dark Lord, where you basically it was like ways to kill, like what has to happen to kill the Dark Lord, and they, uh, it was, and they were just, again, they were really small, they were really small things, uh, uh, like uh, can only be killed while he's in love, and where you go, oh, oh, I, how would what would have to happen to how would you trick him into. So would you have to, would you have to genuinely be in, would you have to, but then you might fall in love with him. Oh, oh, oh. And then, a, and then that feeling of like the story just like just bashing down the door and uh, making itself some dinner out of your fridge. Is that starts <laughs> happening, right? Because you've made yourself a stipulation. You've made a rule. So now you need to start finding the conditions that lead to that win condition. So your so yeah. your idea is like the, the with a rule is that actually what we're doing is we're creating it's almost like like you're making a little procedural generator that is just going to start spewing story. You just like create a few rules and theoretically that is going to start just going well if that's true and this premise is true and you need then you feed a, a thing into it and it's going to start generating the reason story. it becomes possible to tell a story from that is because you're narrowing down your possibilities from infinity to many. Yeah. And, and that that's that passes through a membrane of possibility. So um just to sort of wrap up for our um uh listeners, uh and thank you so much for coming on. I've This has been big fun. I would love to talk to you again sometime because it just I feel like we could um talk for ages on this and I'm I'm I I'm gonna go away and process so much of this as we kind of gone everywhere. Um uh have you got if you had a sort of suggestion for anyone who's listening who's stuck, who's maybe had like half an idea for a world or a story kind of like they've been you know going to work and on the bus they're kind of thinking about their world or thinking about their characters um but they've not quite been able to get going i think sort of uh aside from kind of following you on twitter and uh getting that kind of like daily kind of just injection of uh a brain steroid straight into your imagination node uh have you got any sort of advice or tips or encouragement or uh, uh, little disruptive mind bombs uh, to give them about how they might kind of get out from that stuck kind of calcified position into this thing where, you know, a lot of your projects, it feels like you are just madly chasing an idea like a kind of like cub reporter with a notebook, just, <laughs> just writing down what the idea is doing. Okay, so I would say... Um... If you found yourself in a position where you've got, um, say you're listening to a piece of music 
uh, and it conjures up an image. You know that kind of fuzzy image where you think, oh, this this could be an element of a setting. You know, you just get a mental image and it's strong. I suppose if you got to that point, I would think a good question to ask yourself would be, uh, if you... A, ask yourself, how could I live the nearest thing to the life I do in that setting? So find somewhere you can ground yourself in it. And then say, if I did, what's an, what's something that would be a normal thing to happen to me in this world, but which would be a bloody catastrophe in that one? Um, so imagine you living something like your everyday life in this setting. It could be a very vague setting, but think what you do know about it. And then imagine you encountering the, the general mundane, you know... Uh, barely noteworthy obstacles you encounter in everyday life and think which one would be a life-stopping catastrophe in that other world and then you found you know where your drama is perhaps yeah like so that and that's because because then that becomes a, a story seed and it's like i this is something that i want and also that's a point of connection because often the things that you want to do in your life that are mundane are things that readers can and and actually that's really interesting because that is not a, necessarily a conventional way to think about the world where it's like okay well do I want an do I want an orb or some kind of um, prognosticating sword and it's and you're saying uh, uh, maybe you just uh, want to uh, maybe maybe just uh, want to uh, have a have a have have a really nice uh, a really nice relax, and uh, you want to have a shower and get clean. But in this world, uh, in this world, there is th th a massive shortage of water. Well, the water's boiling sulfur. Yeah, and yeah. so and and so, what? How are you going to? So um, immediately, you could. Yeah, I see. Like that, it does mean that you're coming into these uh, stories with problems that immediately start telling the reader stuff about the world as well yeah or i suppose the if you're struggling with that then just turn it the other way around and imagine your ordinary life and change one physical content um one uh physical constraint to the universe around you so it's your ordinary life but the force of gravity is five times as strong <laughs> would you i mean it's just immediately like very very well and then you start reading about astronauts and stuff and you go and you see the stuff that they stuff that you wouldn't even consider you wouldn't be able to do that they can't do and you're like oh yeah oh shit we rely on gravity for a lot <laughs> or it's the ordinary world but eggs contain a million calories <laughs> you know the entire food economy revolves around eggs chickens are prized possessions yeah you know, shit because then you could then you could if you could powder an egg you could feed the world and then but then there would be, like, if someone could invent a kind of avian flu, they could hold the entire world to ransom. Because presumably then, a whole bunch of other food economy is considered not worth it. So then actually a lot of stuff that we have easy access to, they go, well, we're going to, like, put all our um, eggs in one basket. Hey! Uh, oh! And, uh, and, and, and completely go down egg egg production the world um population grows massively and then all someone has to do is find a way of uh threatening the world chicken population and because we've just relied on being able to have them but so, yeah, yeah. great so in fact forget about rationalizing why eggs have a million calories yeah actually forget the first thing i said completely just think of the normal world but change one thing and make it the first thing you think of 
just make up a new rule for the world and then make as long a list as you can of all the things that would change. And I mean everything that would change. All the bizarre implications it could have in hundreds of years' time. Um, and then once you've got that list, you know, maybe you've started to lose the traces of the real world that were in it to, to start with and you've got something entirely of your own creation. That sounds wicked. Well, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast uh how can if people were say on uh, twitter and they wanted to follow you how might they do that that's the place uh i am at frog croakley so f-r-o-g-c-r-o-a-k-l-e-y and if people and i will put links to uh your books in the un, uh, on my website underneath i'm pointing downwards but i'm not on youtube so people can't <laughs> see me pointing down to the, the comments below <laughs> i i'm way way too uh, far ahead but um if you, could you just uh, if people want to uh, read some of your work i'll put links to it but what uh, what can they read yeah so if you are up for some uh fictional video games it's the 100 best video games that never existed. That, uh, that never existed is in brackets. Uh, or if you want to read uh, Maritime, Marxist, Diesel Core, Zombie, Humor, Whale Core, uh, you can uh, buy The Death and Life of Schneider Rack. Uh, Schneider spelt S C H N E I D E R. Uh, and Rack with a W at the beginning. I wish I'd given him an easy name for marketing purposes. No, Schneider Rack is an awesome, awesome He's name. good, isn't it? He's really good. You must be pleased. Yeah, uh, that's, that's cool. Okay, well, I'll put links to all of those. I'm pointing down again, but that's just for me now, um, on the website to make sure, and you can just click through and uh, buy some of Nate Crowley's books. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been wonderful to have you. I hope at some stage we can have you on again. Um I'm Tim Clare. Of course, you already know that if you're listening this far along. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, then uh, please do share it with your pals and perhaps with your enemies because they will just uh, feel disgusted that you're having such a lovely life and you can you can you can revel in that uh, Schadenfreude. Um, but also, you can uh, support the podcast by. Uh, by clicking through onto my website and there's a little uh, tab that says uh, rather presumptuously buy me a coffee you don't have to buy me a coffee but you can click through there and if you want to put anything towards uh, the hosting costs uh, then I would love you to do that thank you to everyone who's done that already and of course you can get in touch with me with any of your complaints concerns or uh, fulsome pl praise or questions about things you'd like me to talk about in future podcasts by going to my website. There's a little contact me uh, link. Click on that. You can send me an email. Thank you to everyone who's been doing the Couch to 80 k po um, podcast, working through it. There is now a growing alumni group. Um, thank you so much for all your messages. I'm glad so far that everyone who's contacted with me as it seems to be enjoying it and if you are working through it at the moment uh, more power to your elbow i am right behind you and do let me know how you're getting on i shall see you uh, on the next uh, episode uh, thank you very much for listening and good luck with your writing this week <laughs>